Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hear the Future, the podcast dedicated to gaining inside access to today's most inspiring thought leaders. Today, we are incredibly fortunate to be joined by Gabriella Hersham. Gabby is the CEO and co-founder of Hackletree, a unique co-working space which brings together a diverse community of startups, innovators, and entrepreneurs, all powered by a shared belief in collaboration as a key business principle. With multiple offices in London, Manchester, and Dublin, Hackletree has grown into an ecosystem which continues to empower the modern workforce. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, guys. How are you? Yeah, we're excited that you could join us. So, Gabby, you're someone who has successfully founded and run a company for what's coming up to seven years. Looking back, would you say that there were any indications from childhood or an early age that foreshadowed you becoming an entrepreneur? I think that um, my childhood, um, like you know, many of ours, was was interesting and very colourful. Um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a household where um, my father was an entrepreneur. So my father um, is a property entrepreneur, and I just saw him kind of diligently, you know, working night and day um, to put food on the table. And you know, I always kind of had that as my backdrop of what a what a good work ethic should look like. Um, and my mother also, you know, my mother, my parents got divorced when I was quite young. And, you know, I saw my mom go out there and fight to make her own income um, at a time where actually many women and many of her contemporaries weren't doing that. Um, and so that really kind of gave me an understanding as to, you know, what a strong working woman could look like. Um, so I didn't necessarily know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur or what I would do, but I definitely knew that I wanted to, um, I guess, you know, pay their hard work, the respect that it deserved and go out and, and build something similar and have a similar work ethos on my side. And that's, that definitely kind of steers me through my life and, and continues to do so today. So I guess maybe I'd be curious to know, was there anything in particular that you wanted to be growing up um, and sort of who were, who were your major influences growing up? I, it's interesting. It's a really good question. I don't, um, you know, I was never someone that always knew what I wanted to do. And I think I kind of, you know, had lots of ideas about what I would do ranging from being an actress. And I actually kind of graduated from uh, university and went to uh, film school in New York um, to being a, um, on the kind of camera side of film production and lots of other things in between. I think, you know, if I had to link all of those things together, you know, the, the kind of thread is that I had very big ambitions for myself. And, you know, that that has kind of led me to my journey to where I am today, because, you know, starting a business is no mean feat. And I think you have to have semi delusions of grandeur. I've got my video off, but I'm speaking in inverted commas, um, you know, and big ambitions in order to do that. And so I think, you know, that has been my thread is that whatever I've wanted to do, I've always thought very big, and I've always wanted to leave a mark on, on, on the world around me. Yeah. And having spent some time in the US, what did you see as the biggest cultural differences between the US and the UK when doing business? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, how to phrase this in a way that doesn't offend either of the sides. Um, <laughs> I think, I think um, you know, in the UK, we're very, um, I think we kind of understate, underpromise, over deliver. Whereas, you know, in the US, it's, you know, anything goes until proven otherwise. So, you know, 
I'm I'm very much mu- I'm very much more aligned with the UK mentality of I don't necessarily need to say everything that I'm doing or you know if it will come to fruition, but I like to think that I can o- over deliver on those things. I guess also I'd be curious to know sort of what did you end up doing whilst you were in New York studying? So I was at film school. I was at the Lee Strasberg um, Theatre and Film Academy, if I remember the name correctly. I was there for two years. And I was learning how to act, basically. And I was filming lots of independent films when I was there. And it all came to a head when AI kind of came across the co-working concept and became very passionate about it very quickly. B, um, just started thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I going to be able to leave this big legacy in this kind of film industry where it's so much is down to luck and chance and who you know? Uh, and C had to move back to London. And I think when all of those three things happened kind of at the same time, I decided to jump ship and move into the world of entrepreneurship. But my film training has really um, seen me through. I do a lot of public speaking um, and a lot of it is live. And actually having that uh, ability to go live in front of an audience that I was trained to do has allowed me not to, you know, not get anxious or nervous before doing so, because I always do, but to know how to channel that anxiety into energy uh, when I'm speaking. So it's, it has definitely served me in more ways than one. Hmm. Just while we're on this topic of anxiety and, you know, coping with it, what is one sort of tip that you would tell somebody who's anxious, who's, you know, maybe doing some public speaking? What's something that you would tell them to address the anxieties that they might have? Can you hear this sound? Yes. <laughs> it's ice in my cocktail glass. So have a drink. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Have a drink, well, that, ease that, the nerves. That, that does take the edge off it. I'm not going to lie, definitely for me. I think, um, you know, one thing that really helped me, so I did, a, I did a live news piece on Friday in front of, I think it was like 13 million people. And um, I was super nervous before the... Um, broadcasters called me and kind of got me set up my palms were getting sweaty my throat was all dry I needed to drink loads of water like all the classic symptoms that my body is telling me that I'm getting anxiety were manifesting and I just thought to myself think of how many people get up there and go on live news or go on tv or speak on a panel whatever it is every single day and there's nobody that's you know more of an expert on my business than me and, you know, various members of my team, but me included in that. And I can do this and I am an expert and I have agency to talk about this. And those thoughts just calmed me down. And I think that that is a really good strategy for anybody getting getting nervous. If you're going up there and you're talking about your world, then you are that expert. And, you know, anything that you say goes. Yeah. Wow. Um, I guess, so speaking more to that, so where did the idea for Hakotri come from? So I, um, it was at the time when I was living in New York and I kind of, I, I moved from front of camera to behind the camera and started working with a film production company. And we were um, working from my um, then partner's flat in the West Village for a really long time. Um, and it was lonely, it was depressing, it was isolating, it wasn't very inspiring, like all of the things that we now know is true about working from home after having doing it for, for the last eight months. Um, and at the end of it, we started hearing about these like shared workspaces that were cropping up around the city, but we didn't even know the kind of co-working term for them. And we put a, an ad up on Facebook or a post on Facebook saying, has anyone heard of any? And got pointed in the direction of one that we ended up joining. And I loved it. Like I just found it magical how, you know, going from being in this small like studio apartment 
to being in this huge place with like hundreds of people that I could meet and socialize with and collaborate with and learn from and grow with. I just found that incredible. Um, and I moved back to London, as I mentioned, and the concept wasn't all over London. And I just really wanted to bring it and really saw that there was a demand. So that's kind of, that was how it happened. Yeah. And could you tell us the story of how you met your co-founder? Yes. Um, so my co-founder, Andrew, I, um, so I, I started the business, I had an idea and then I went to our mutual friend, Alex to say, I've got this idea. Um, I think it has legs. I think there's a market for it, but I need to raise, you know, X hundred grand. Um, I need your help because I had the kind of creative and the, the vision behind it, but I didn't have the knowledge of how to go out and raise that money. I'd done it for the film industry, but I hadn't done it entrepreneurially, so to speak. And Alex kind of helped me put the collateral together um, and opened his network to me and, and helped me raise the money and, you know, launch the business with me. Um, and then a couple of years later, it became apparent that I needed an operational co-founder. Alex couldn't be operational because he had his own fund that he was running. And uh, I was introduced to Andrew, who is my co-founder and has been my co-founder for, for the past five and a half years via my husband, Antoine. Antoine works at uh, Felix Capital Venture Fund and Andrew was at uh, Cambridge Associates and they were underwriting the fund that Felix Capital were raising at the time. And so Andrew and Antoine had met via work and when I was looking for a co-founder, Antoine put me in touch and it's been a, it's, you know, it's been a great relationship. We're, we're very close. Could you maybe speak a little more to the um, sort of the, the operational challenges that come with running such a business? So there are, you know, many operational challenges that come with running any hospitality business and, you know, large amount of them probably don't, don't need to be, you know, spoken about in great detail, but safe to say when you're running anything that comes with physical space, you know, you'll have daily operational challenges. Um, and, you know, the truth is, is that the area of the business that I focus much more on um, that that presents itself with with daily challenges, albeit you know sometimes that they're wonderful challenges, are uh, the people side of the business. So pre-COVID, we were a team of eighty people. We've now downsized and kind of stripped it back to what we actually need today, and we've downsized that by about 25-30%. Uh, but I can say that when we were eighty people, every single day, you know, you're kind of putting out little. HR fires um, and trying to negotiate and be diplomatic and you know make people stay incentivized and engaged and happy um, and I think you know those are challenges of any growing business that you know are are uh, difficult to overcome but very very rewarding when you do. Hmm. And I'd be curious to know, especially in sort of the early stages, what did you look for in employees when you were hiring? I love that question. Okay. Um, so I, you can maybe hear it in my voice. I'm very, very passionate about the people side of the business. And, you know, if ever anyone asks me, what's your, what are you most proud of with Huckletree? Or um, what do you think is like the secret ingredient behind Huckletree or any of these things for me, it like always, always comes down to the people. Um, I've always been involved in the hiring process at Huckletree. So I think over the years we've you know, had north of 120 people in the team. And I've been involved in hiring each and every one of those people. 
Um, most of them kind of from a frontline perspective, some of them when I was on maternity leave or in days where I haven't been able to be as involved in that side of the business as others from a more kind of end of the process perspective. Uh, but safe to say I've met and, and you know, had to get on board with every single person that we were hiring. And I think the one thing that I um, look for, and it's not one thing actually, so that's a bit of a lie, but you know, the things that I look for when I'm hiring, I treat it very much as would I want to be friends with this person? And it's a very Marmite answer. Not everybody's going to like it, but it's worked for me. Like when I look at my friends, I think, is this person ambitious? Like, do they excite me? Am I going to learn from them? Are we going to have like great, inspiring conversations? Um, are we going to grow together as people? Um, are they kind? Are they nice? Are they going to be great to me in friendship, in the work context? Are they going to support their team members? Um, and do they have a strong work ethic? And I think when you have those three things, you have a great person to work with. And those are the things that I always, always look for when I'm when I'm hiring someone. Um, but of course, there are many other things that that come into it too. Obviously, like a big um, focal point for us is making sure that our team is very diverse. And so, you know, obviously that has its own um, set of uh, things that you're looking for when you're going out and, and challenges and making sure that you're truly building a diverse company. And, and and where did the uh, the name Huckletree actually come from? So the name Huckletree, it's a really good question. Um, we were, when we were launching Huckletree, we were very adamant that our kind of USP and big differentiator was going to be that we were going to be the most sustainable co-working company in the world. And we wanted a name that A, didn't, ha- didn't have the words work or office in it, um, B sounded sustainable and organic, hence the tree and huckle tree. Um, but C sounds a little bit literary um, and serious. So huckle tree is a reference to Huckleberry Finn. Um, and so my best friend kind of, you know, one day had a brainwave and called me and said, it's huckle tree because I've been looking for the name for a long time. Um, and it's stuck and I, I love it. Yeah, I think it's a really nice name too. And you talked about community being a massive aspect. So what type of things do Huckletree do to encourage a community feeling uh, across the entire workspace? So um, I guess the main thing that we do, like our big differentiator between us and kind of any of our competitors that you could know about is that for us, we are very focused on the tech and innovation ecosystem. So all of our members across all of our spaces um, fall within that. So they're either kind of early stage entrepreneurs, startups, latest stage scale up businesses, corporate venture teams, corporate innovation teams, venture capital teams, or service providers that give back to the ecosystem. Um, and within that, you've already got a great mix of people that makes for very engaged communities. But then further, we kind of theme our buildings, our hubs, by uh, industry or by kind of groups of industries. So we've got challenger tech hubs, we've got venture hubs, we've got digital lifestyle hubs, we've got GovTech, a GovTech hub in Westminster, et cetera, et cetera. And and we feel that when you bring these businesses together, um, you're creating some kind of magic and something that you can't find in any old building, so to speak. So really interesting. So sort of the split that you guys have um maybe could you tell us maybe about some let's say like cool interesting things that have come out from uh, some huckle tree members yeah i can um well i mean we have loads of members that you would have heard of so off the top of my head you know starling bank and members of ours in dublin deep upper members of ours in manchester we've got tons of vc funds that are members of ours uh, across our london spaces we 
do a lot of work with the government in our GovTech hub, which is Public Hall, um, powered by Huggletree in Westminster. Um, we've got Sifted, we've got Crowdcube. I mean, you know, we've got a great ecosystem across all of our spaces. So, so you'd kind of you have heard of a lot of our members. That's awesome. And, you know, it's also really great to see how you guys have spread out from just starting in London to opening offices in Manchester and more recently Dublin as well. I'm curious to know, you know, what sort of criteria, what does your market analysis look like when you decide what's the next location that we should open up a huggle tree in? Um, so until now, it's been very much gut feeling. This is this is very much an area that Andrew, my co-founder, runs as part of the business. So he runs kind of, you know, our expansion. And it's very mm-hmm. much... Um, led by gut feeling about where the next huckle should be, where, um, you know, our members want us to go, where there are very large kind of tech and innovation ecosystems. Um, and once we have that gut feeling, it's about structuring a great deal with, um, with the developer or the landlord and, you know, a deal that really works and, and brings value to both parties. So my co-founder, Andrew, Andrew is really, really great at that. And, and obviously, you know, strategy comes into it in the sense of, we're in three cities and those these three cities are our focus um, as opposed to kind of spreading ourselves too thin and thinking, oh, I know I'll do a space in Barcelona and then we'll do a space in Paris. And actually all of a sudden it becomes a man- management nightmare. Um, yeah, yeah. We've had experience with. So, so just being focused in the cities that we are kind of currently operating in and making those each of those three our home cities. Nice. And so sp- speaking more to the, the members that you have, I guess, what are sort of the main um, customer acquisition channels, if you will, when sort of trying to find sort of new members to join the Huckletree community? I'd say I was actually on a panel event last week where I was asked this question. There is no one answer. I think, you know, we have lots of different products across the business and um, each of those products will have their own channels that that work really well. Um, You know, we've got we've got membership throughout our spaces, but we also have educational products. So we have um, an accelerator program for diverse founders that we've been running for four years now. We have a future founder Academy, which is a one week intensive um, learn how to get your startup off the ground. Um, And we have another kind of corporate uh, innovation uh, product that we are launching in the new year. And, you know, those three channels, of their own have very different customer acquisition channels and methods. But then if you compare that to membership and workspace, it's just massively different um, sales and marketing processes. So there isn't a uniform answer to that, um, which is exciting because it means we get to try and test loads of different channels and engage different partners and different content on, on for each. So it kind of keeps us, keeps us on our toes, keeps us creative. Yeah, it's really cool to hear about some of those new programs that Huckletree started, um, you know, such as the uh, the Startup Accelerator course. What is the long-term vision for Huckletree? If you think about Huckletree maybe five years down the line, where do you see it? I think, you know, what we have, you know, Huckletree is is the home of entrepreneurship. I think that um, that line ties us through, you know, where we were when we first launched in 2014, where we are today and where we see ourselves in five years time. Um, it means that, you know, we have the ability to add new um, products and initiatives as we've been doing with our educational products um, to grow, you know, our workspace channels. Um, and, and maybe in the future to do, you know, completely different things, but that all tie under this, this concept of being the home for entrepreneurship and supporting entrepreneurship. And, you know, I think having that 
mission kind of tie us through um, makes makes perfect sense for everything we're building. I guess I'd also be curious to know. So, you know, what has been sort of the the industry reaction so far to to COVID, and sort of how have how have you guys tried to adapt to a to a you know quite a quite a difficult situation. Yeah, look, another another really great question. I think the very first thing that we did was to ensure that all of our spaces were completely COVID secure. Um, so obviously, and I don't know if you guys know this, but we actually never had to close down our spaces. So the government never said you can't work. They always said you should work from home. You know, when we were in that first lockdown period from March till June or whenever, whenever it was, they were always saying work from home unless you really can't and then go to work. But lots of people still went to work. Um, so our spaces were never mandated to shut down, which meant that we had to invest a lot of time and resources into making sure that they were all COVID secure to bring that comfort to our members that they can still work from the spaces without concern. Um, the very second thing that we jumped on was offering more flexible membership packages. So new packages to fit every single company's needs. Um, it's not just about discounting. It's also about just giving them that flexibility, access to the space, you know, on a more flexible, shorter term, shared um, shared workspaces, etc. Um, we, we innovated our way around the lockdown like there was no tomorrow. So we, you know, built these new educational products to help our members accelerate their businesses and navigate. Um, another education project product that we launched during lockdown was the hundreds club which is a careers accelerator program so we realized that we were spending a lot of our time focusing on the founders behind businesses but not so much um of kind of Hucklebury's um, force went towards helping, you know, employees at businesses accelerate their careers. So we launched a career accelerator program called Hundreds, which puts 25 people each th quarter through in a specific domain through an acceleration program. So we've done a marketing um, track, we're, we're moving on to something else in the new year. Um, and I think, you know, the last thing that we've seen is that we're becoming more advisors rather than providers for the ecosystem and working more and more with larger enterprise businesses as well to bring them flexibility. Nice. Well, it's really great to hear that you guys have done so many different initiatives, um, especially during what's such a hard time. I think also in terms of mental well-being, you know, I'm sure for a lot of people, Hockletree, you spend enough time there, it becomes your second home. And kind of the importance of having a community, being surrounded by other people, um, something that must really resonate with Hockletree's values and principles. 100%. So on a separate note, what does your day-to-day -day look like? You know, take me through today. What was the kind of start until now? Okay, so today I was at Huckletree West in White City. So I um, spread my time between our London locations. Um, on Mondays, I'm at, I'm at White City. And I think I just didn't get up from where I was sitting for pretty much the whole day. It's, you know, a combination of <laughs> team calls and, you know, different meetings with external, whoever they may be, if it's like, you know, we do a lot of, we're a very kind of sales driven team. So everybody like gets very on board in the sales process. Whoever like grabs a lead, you like take it and you run with it and you nurture it and you kind of like bring them in, so to speak. So a lot of like sales processes that I'm running. Um, but I guess, you know, my I, I put like a, a kind of Instagram story out on Friday night last week because I had a crazy week last week. And I said on my Instagram story that I'd had 37 meetings. I did two panel events. I did one live news piece. I did um, one round table. I spent a lot of time thinking about how to build for a more inclusive uh, business and ecosystem. Um, and I think then I went on to talk about all the stuff that I did with my children that week too, but that was my week last week. So it's, um, it is intense. 
jam-packed jam-packed yeah. to say the least <laughs> i guess i like it that way though yeah yeah so, as, as someone so who builds so workspaces for others how can we um sort of promote more gender diversity in the workplace are, are there any things in particular that hockey tries to do to tackle this you know for us and and for what we're seeing like gender diversity especially like gender diversity in tech was a really big thing a few years ago when it was like apparent that you know loads of founders are are male and loads of people that are working in technical roles are male and that is definitely still a problem but i think that there's a wider problem right now which is like the problem of diversity in general in technology so you do, you just don't have um enough representation from you know minority minority ethnicities um from um different sexual orientations from different age groups from different ability groups etc and i think the conversation is now much much wider than um than just about gender um and you know i think one thing that is is surfacing is that it's one thing to talk about like recruiting and and building a a diverse team but once the um team members are there it's a whole another ball game talking about how to retain them and how to make sure that everybody has access to equal opportunities and everybody is you know being developed and promoted and and um accelerated in a in a fair and equal way and that it's equitable across the business so it's just a it's you know it's a really interesting conversation that we spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to you know help and 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 encourage the ecosystem to think about as well mm and what is the biggest challenge or maybe perhaps an advantage of being a female entrepreneur in 2020 i mean i don't know if there are advantages you know i guess like one advantage is that you know diversity is becoming um very trendy and topical and at the lo- at the top of a lot of people's agendas and you know the v- the vc funds are being forced to report on their uh, the diversity and the kind of health type di- the diversity health of their portfolios so i guess yeah. to that extent like i'm personally at you know a bigger advantage today than i was like 5 years ago but am i at an equal advantage to men like still not i'm just still not because there's still going to be that uh, affiliation and you know most of the decision makers in the in the venture world are, are still men are still white men so there's going to be that you know affiliation bias along with what you said about you know um how vcs are looking into the sort of diversity health of a company before they invest in it what other kind of things would you tell them to do like uh in order to reduce the disparity between you know opportunities of men and women for the vcs yeah you mean i mean i think like a really big thing is that the vcs themselves need to have diversity like if you don't have women at the decision making table or minorities at the decision making table or you know any other decision maker from you know a diverse background um then you're not going to have a truly neutral decision making process i really think it starts from there um so that's the first thing for the vcs and it's it's definitely something yeah. i know a lot of vcs i know atomico are at the forefront of this i know a lot of them are really thinking about this um mm-hmm. but you know even within the vc industry it's not yet equal so that's the starting point a little anecdote if i if i can somebody i was having a meeting with somebody today i really hope they don't hear this because i'll be so embarrassed but somebody somebody today you know we were having a meeting and it's about like a big kind of commercial opportunity for them and for us and and the potential to partner on something together and at the end of the meeting they said to me you know you know just just so i know what what does your approval process look look like on this and i kind of was 
I was a bit shocked. I, I was like, what, what, what do you mean? Um, and they elaborated. They were like, well, you know, who do you need to get approval in order for to get this passed? And I literally just wanted to be like, have you not seen my job title? Like, are you asking because I'm a woman? You, you, I, I laughed about it with Andrew afterwards. I, I went back to him and I said, look, they definitely wouldn't have asked that if it was you that they were speaking to. You know, you see the mm-hmm. job title COO or co-founder, in my case, CEO, co-founder. You don't ask that question. But, you yeah. know, as a woman, you're still being asked that question. And honestly, it makes my bl- blood boil. I, I guess speaking more to that sort of what, what advice would you give to the, to the next generation of uh, female leaders? I, it's a really good question. I don't know if I need to give any advice. Like I think, you know, we are headed in the right direction. I think that the main advice would be if if an investor doesn't inherently understand the market um, for your product or the product that you're building or your industry, use that to your advantage. Like as women, we tend to build um, businesses around problems that we have faced and pain points that we have faced. And we are the expert in those worlds. Like we're the expert on on female health. We're the, we're the, we're the experts on kind of female well-being. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need to learn to use that to our advantage and open, you know, the investors' eyes to markets that they didn't know existed. Maybe aside from, you know, gender diversity in the workplace and also, as you mentioned, just diversity in general in the workplace, we sort of have a signature question that we like to ask all of our guests. And that is, if you could change any one thing in the next 10 years, what would it be and why? Well, I think, you know, my mind does naturally come back to the topic of diversity. And I think one thing that I'm really trying to do, and there are, I have two young boys at home. My eldest is four and a half and my young, my baby is a year. And, you know, even just today when I was leaving work, my mom said to me, don't you, don't you like miss them so much? How do you do it every day? And I said, honestly, no, I don't, because I know in the back of my mind that I am doing them the best service that I can be doing by showing them what it, what it means to be a woman out there working and, and, you know, paving a way as I am in my own small way to, you know, more equality. Um, But I think I would hope that, you know, for their sake and for the sake of, you know, their generation and the generations to come, that this isn't a conversation that we need to continue having in 10 years time, that, you know, equality and inclusivity and diversity is just there and that everybody is represented in equal measure. Wow. Well, what an incredibly inspiring message to end on. Uh, Thank you so much for speaking with us, Gabriella. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both. Thanks very much.